sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a leaked list of a far-right group that includes some police chief, elected officials, and others. Also going to be discussing yet another aid package making its way from the U.S. to Ukraine. Also going to be talking about how the courts in Israel are a core tool in the oppression of Palestinian people. And going to be touching on a new documentary that's centered around a Ted Hall, a very important figure in nuclear history. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Garland Nixon, co-host of The Critical Hour, which you can hear from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Radio Sputnik. Garland, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And Garland, a leaked uh, membership list from the Oath Keepers, a well-known far-right group here in the United States, uh, reportedly contains the names of hundreds of U.S. law enforcement officers, military members, and uh, uh, elected officials. And, you know, reportedly this comes from an analysis from the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism, who looked over more than 38,000 names on these leaked membership lists and identified more than 370 people they believe uh, currently work in law enforcement, including sheriffs and police chiefs, and more than 100 folks uh, are currently serving as members of the military, along with more than 80 people who were running for or serving in a public office at this time. And it seems, Garland, that, um, you know, every so often we, we get a real look into who's actually working and involved with uh, uh, some of these far right groups. And it seems uh, uh, like, you know, whenever this happens, it almost always does reflect um, uh, a disquieting uh, number of connections between law enforcement, military and uh, public officials, like we're saying. And I think particularly in the aftermath of January 6, 2021. So, you know, just sort of generally uh, wondering your you know thoughts on this and what do you think it means in our political moment? Well, I've got so many thoughts on this, but I'll start with this. Let me start with the, anti, uh, the Anti-Defamation League. Well, I'm glad to see they're finally opposed to some far-right groups. I can name a whole lot of far-right Israeli groups. I'd be happy if they opposed. Okay, yeah, I'm no, you know, but that's a whole other story. That's so true. a couple of things here. I, I, I got, I'm all over the place, so I'll start here. Number one, as far as the Oath Keepers group, it's a, far, it's a right-wing group, yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, as long as it's legal and they have a constitutional right, I'm big on this. If they have a constitutional right to be a member of that group and it's a constitutionally legal group, I wouldn't oppose it. I'd be like, yeah, it's nothing I'd ever do. But if it's constitutional, I'm big on constitutional rights, regardless of whether or not I agree with their views or not. I'm big on that. But let me say this, a couple of things. And I think this is important. You know, I was in law enforcement overwhelmingly right-wing and conservative, overwhelmingly, and we could get into a number of cultural reasons why conservative and right-wing people would be more attracted to that type of a, um, to that type of a, of, 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 of a job, right? That type of employment. But I'll say this, there is, it is implied in there that to me, maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me on that if you think it's something different. That, okay, they're right wing, therefore that's causing the problems in policing. 
I don't think that. I believe the problems in policing overwhelmingly are caused because of a system that does not have accountability. Right. That law enforcement officers can do right wing, left wing. I don't care what you are. You go shoot a black man. You're going to walk. The department is going to do a crooked investigation. And the as in Baltimore, as, as what happened in Baltimore with Freddie Gray, that the actually the Baltimore attorney general or state's attorney said it. You're going to the 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 department's internal investigation is going to act as part of the defense team and they're going to get the person off. And if they go to court, we've got a court system that's going to let them off. So they could be far right. They could be far left. They could be whatever they want. There is a system that we are dealing with that's going to not hold them accountable. So I'm not as concerned with what a police officer does when he gets off duty as it may imply. Now, if, in fact, the you're a member of a group that's a, you know, a, something that, you know, whatever, a group that's a, of, 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 of dubious nature off duty. And we see that with that same person on duty, certainly. But in reality, to me, the problems in law enforcement are not necessarily from the ideology of the respective law enforcement officers. It's from a political system and a um, court system that does not hold police officers accountable, particularly when they abuse people of color. And I know that's a lot, but that's all that was running through my mind. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think the issue perhaps lies with um, uh, the, the the Oath Keepers and sort of the association they have as, you know, one of the main sort of armed uh, vigilante groups uh, here in the U.S. And then particularly when, you know, we have this uh, strain of uh, politics um, uh, emanating from, you know, the, the, the Trumpist camp that seems to want to encourage uh, the kind of violence that we see in the streets. But even still, I mean, I think you're sort of, uh, you know, correct when you sort of describe the fact that, you know, it's really the system of policing and all these sorts of things where the issues sort of come from. I mean, we are talking about uh, an institution that that emerges out of slavery itself. But I think particularly in a time where we're seeing an increase in, you know, uh, uh, violent racism and anti-LGBTQ bigotry and things like that, you know, to see police and military officers and officials associated with this, I think, can be worrisome. But I mean, I would maintain that um, in a sense, it's not that surprising, really, because I think that a lot of times these types of figures, um, you know, they sort of play coy, I think, with their association with these uh, uh, types of groups. But I mean, as we see from, I think, this leaks and others like it, there's still this kind of troublesome trend of these uh, far right sort of elements in different levels of the U.S. state. And I think particularly like with all these things around, you know, like uh, not only the Black Lives Matter movement, but, you know, what's been termed critical race theory, the sort of uh, uh, culture war thing that the right, I think, kind of conjured up out of nowhere and all these sorts of things. I mean, I do think it's sort of a trend worth keeping an eye on uh, when we see it here, sort of bound up in sort of the broader context of our moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you. And see, there's another problem. And that is while like people like 
who are really concerned with these issues are working to address the issues, right? You have something like Joe Biden coming out the other day and doing that MAGA speech. And to me, what you do is this, you throwing gas on that fire. So now somebody says, yes, they want to take us out and put us all of us MAGA people in Guantanamo Bay. Then Joe comes out and he does that and it throws gasoline on the fire and you increase that. You know what I mean? So to me, the the conservative traditional mentality of conservative, the traditional culture of conservatism in the United States has been anti, very anti um rights for equal rights for people of color, for marginalized group. That is traditional conservatism in the United States, right? And now when you, so, and what happens is you get people that say, we're being persecuted. And then Biden comes out and does the dark Brandon speech. And that just builds this. So I, I guess I'm, 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 I'm with, I'm, as far as I'm concerned is, because I was in law enforcement, it's like if somebody says, yes, law enforcement people are, uh, you know, there are a lot of them are right wingers and right wing. I'm like, uh, not a lot of them, <laughs> you know, oh, about nine, uh, upper 90 some percent. You know, I, blah, blah. I would I'm going to say in a 90 percentage rate, 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 you know what I mean? 90 percent. I was from law enforcement. Most of the people were conservative and not everybody was, you know, far right conservative. I'll say it's probably overwhelming a lot of people that support Trump and all. But again. If you're acting within the constraints of the law in your group, whether I agree with their views or not, if, if they don't do something that's going to killing black folks or doing something, I ain't going to like it and I'm going to gripe against them. But I'm going to say they they have a right to do that. Yeah. But I but again, I guess there's a feeling to me that says there are people who are arguing the problem in law enforcement is ideology, a far right wing ideology. And I don't agree with that. I think it's a systemic problem. And I don't care how who you are. I don't care what your ideology is. You shoot a black person, you're walking. Yeah. You're walking because of the system. You can be a member of you can be LGBTQ and everything else. You shoot a black person, and you're a cop, you're going to walk or really most anybody. Let's face it. You're probably going to walk. But a black person, they're going to give you a, you know, they're probably going to get, you know, a, uh, you know, a raise and a, and a promotion. Yeah. And, you know, you know, it, it has been interesting to sort of see how Biden has been sort of uh, grappling with this whole thing. I mean, we've been talking on the show about how those types of speeches, it sort of obscures the role that the Democrats played in, in the rise of a Trump and that particular strain of a far right politics here in the U.S. And it also covers up the fact that the Democrats themselves are, at least in my estimation, a center right party. And so we're talking uh, about sort of different shapes. One thing real quick, hate to interrupt you. And then Joe Biden comes out and says, we're giving lots of more money for more cops. Yeah. You know what I mean? 37 billion. Yeah, we got 37 billion. We need more cops. He don't have money for the black folks in Jackson, Mississippi to have water. Uh, a, A meager billion and a half for Flint. What? A lot of people of color. They need water. Black folks can't water. Columbus, Ohio, they are in the streets, the teachers, because they don't have heating and air conditioning. But $37 billion for more cops. The children who are suffering and not getting a decent education are more likely to be involved in crime and desperation and poverty and things like that. He won't put the money in the anti-poverty programs that are going to help 
lower crime. But now, you know, he's going to say all this stuff about the right wing people are doing this. But then when you look at his policies, they're right wing and they're authoritarian saying we need more cops with guns to go bang people in the head. And that's just going to fix the problem. It's to me. Oh, I'm exasperated over (laughs) Biden. Don't start me with Biden. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In our last couple of minutes, Garland, I also want to touch on this issue of uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, uh, recently announced a new military aid package worth more than $2.8 billion headed towards Ukraine and other European countries, uh, the way that Reuters, excuse me, that AP puts it, quote, threatened by Russia. And so this uh, goes directly to to, to sort of what you're saying, is that— the pockets of the U.S. government, really the American state, they overflow for, you know, all the different wars and for the police and things like that. But we have uh, cities, major cities uh, within the U.S., Jackson, Mississippi, Flint, Michigan, th- these largely black, largely poor working class cities that can't seem to get any relief. Meanwhile, uh, the U.S. never has any issue uh, continuing to bankroll the, the never ending war machine. You know what I mean? And, and let me add this. You know, you got an AP story saying, Oh, we're upset about these officers in these far right uh, uh, organizations. Now let's send more money to the Azov Battalion. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Billions to the Azov Battalion. If you're concerned about far right, you wouldn't be sending money to the Azov Battalion, but they're just sub- such hypocrites. But here's the bottom line. Uh, uh, you know, I'm even contributing to misinformation. Here's why. That money ain't leaving the shores of the United States. It's going to Lockheed Martin. It's going to Raytheon. You know what I mean? Even they say, yes, we're giving money for Latvia, Slovakia, and all these other little postage stamp size uh, countries on the border of Russia, right? What are you giving them? Oh, we're going to buy them stuff from Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. It's a fraud. They took $2.3 trillion into Afghanistan. It was a money laundering. It was an ATM machine for them and their cronies. That ATM closed down. They opened another one in Ukraine. There's no money going to Ukraine. There's no money going to Europe. There's no money leaving the shores. They're going to take it out of the national treasury. They're going to put it right into the pockets of their cronies. Half of the stuff probably won't even go. There was a $3 billion package a couple weeks ago. And when you looked at the package, some of the stuff is not supposed to go to Ukraine for like years. There ain't going to be no Ukraine in a few years to send it to, but they will pay. They they literally, they're taking the money, giving it to the weapons manufacturers to be delivered at a later date. They ain't going to be no Ukraine to deliver it to in, in a couple years. So the reality is, um, this is just part of the corruption that we're dealing with. And again, we look at that, but they got no money to help poor people in the cities or working, working class people in the cities. They got no money for us. They got no money for schools. They just cut out school lunch for children. Can't afford it. Let me add this. Supposedly money to help Europe, right? The people in Europe are cold and hungry and can't afford to survive. What do you need? What are you going to send them food? Are you going to help with their energy bills? Which we shouldn't, but I'm just saying, nope, we're going to send more weapons over there. There we go. Can you eat weapons? It's a fraud, man. These people are fraud. And it just continues the corruption of handing money into their cronies. Totally. Well, we thank you so much, Garland, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, 
And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the Israeli court system aids in Palestinian oppression. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Asa Winstonley, an investigative journalist and associate editor with the Electronic Intifada. Asa, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you all again. Absolutely. And uh, Asa, earlier this week, a Palestinian aid worker by the name of Mohammed El Halabi was sentenced to 12 years uh, in an Israeli court based on a conviction within a court system that really just seems shoddy at uh, absolute best. And frankly, the situation feels like a a frame up of El Halabi. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, what the situation is here, uh, uh, Asa, and why it feels like there may be a kind of cover-up afoot in this case. Yes, uh, Mohammed Al-Halabi was the director of an international Christian charity called World Vision. He was the, the director of their Gaza operation for years. And six years ago, he was arrested on his way back into the Gaza Strip by the Israelis. Um, he was denied access to a lawyer for more than 50 days. Um, And, you know, this whole process has been an absolute sham process. It's been a kangaroo court system, really, is what... I mean, this this is what Israel does to Palestinians. Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, and even some Palestinians in the 1948 territories occupied by Israel. So that is to say, Palestinian so-called citizens of Israel are held in uh, prisons and in a separate court system from Israeli Jews, and they are subjected to military trials. So, you know, you can imagine, you know, there's the old saying about um, military justice being a contradiction in terms. Well, that's certainly the case with the Israeli military. And with the Israeli military, there's the extra dimension that these, this, this court system is set up to be an apartheid system. So overwhelmingly, these courts, I mean, with a very few exceptional circumstances, um, it's only Palestinians who are, who are tried in these military courts. So Israeli Jews in the West Bank, Israeli settlers who should be there in the first place, are subjected to military, uh, are subjected to civilian you know, even when there is any kind of trial against them, perhaps, for example, for throwing stones at soldiers, which happens quite frequently, um, you know, they're subjected to civilian courts. But Palestinians are selected to the, uh, subjected to this travesty of justice, which is the military court system. And, you know, so in, in this way, unfortunately, Mohammed al-Halabi's trial is not unusual. What is unusual is the international dimensions of it and the implications it has for um, aid, for aid work in in the Gaza Strip, for just charity. So, like, I I wrote an article about this on my Substack last week, and, um, you know, in that I said this is part of Israel's attempt to eradicate all forms of Palestinian existence. And what I mean by that is, of course... Israel, as we know, tries to stamp out all forms of Palestinian resistance. So whether it is armed resistance, whether it is 
Palestinian freedom fighters who are trying to defend their population from the armed attack by Israeli soldiers and Israeli settlers, or peaceful unarmed resistance, whether it's cultural resistance, whether it's BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, Israel moves to, Israel calls all of this terrorism. You know, there's this extraordinary scenes that we saw, you know, earlier this year when the, the you know famous uh, American ice cream company Ben and Jerry's declared that it would no longer be selling their ice cream inside Israeli settlements in the West Bank because they're illegal under international law. The Israeli government called this ice cream terrorism. You know, it's totally bizarre. Um, so, you know, any, any kind of sympathy with Palestinians is, is kind of outlawed as, 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 as terrorism. So what Israel is now has been, what Mohammed al-Halabi's case represents is an attempt to eradicate international charity efforts inside the Gaza Strip by fabricating a case against this aid worker. And what they said was, what they claimed was that Mohammed al-Halabi was guilty of siphoning off funds to and sending, uh, you know, that were the budget of World Vision, this international charity, and sending them to Palestinian to Palestinian resistance fighters to Hamas, Palestine's Islamic resistance movement, which uh, the political party which rules um, in the Gaza Strip and has an armed wing which resists Israeli soldiers. Now, in actual fact, it turned out that, you know, after numerous investigations, that this was a complete fabrication. You know, there was never any evidence of it in any case. Um, that Israel never presented any credible evidence that this was true. And multiple credible investigations showed that actually the opposite was true, that Mohammed al-Halabi... Um, were always strived to keep World Vision's operations independent from the Hamas government and to to um, put you know, to kind of draw clear water between the two. Um, and so the idea that he would be um, siphoning off funds was ridiculous on its surface, um, but it was there was never any evidence presented of it. And what makes it even more extraordinary was that. After new, but nonetheless, because you know, despite the fact that it was ridiculous, these claims were ridiculous on on their face. They were taken extremely seriously by World Vision, which is this international Christian charity, as I mentioned. Now, World Vision, a large part of its budget comes from the Australian government, and World Vision. There were several investigations launched. World Vision launched an investigation. It then it also commissioned Deloitte. The financial services, um, you know, massive financial services company to conduct a detailed forensic investigation of World Vision's accounts in Gaza. And the Australian government itself also launched its own investigation. Um, meanwhile, World Vision's operations were completely shut down in the Gaza Strip as a preemptive move while these investigations were happening. Now, I can't, you know, I, it hasn't been revealed, or at least to my knowledge, it hasn't been revealed the expense that this Deloitte audit must have incurred, but it must have been incredibly expensive and involved because it it involved an audit of every financial transaction of the World Vision's Gaza operation over a five-year period. And, you know, 
every single one of these investigations completely exonerated Al Halabi. There was no evidence of the Israelis' allegations. And in fact, their allegations were so outrageously fabricated, they didn't even bother to do a good job of it. What was said was that what was claimed and kind of leaked in the Israeli media about Al Halabi was that he had siphoned off $50 million, $50 million over a, a certain number of years and and sent them towards Hamas. Actual, in actual fact, what turned out was that that $50 million figure was more than double the entire World Vision budget for Gaza for that year's in question. So, you know, it, this was a complete fiction. You know, it was a complete fantasy. And yet, um, in, Ju in June, despite all of this evidence, the Israeli judges just basically completely disregarded all this evidence and instead just took the word of secret evidence from the Shibet, Shin Bet, Israel's secret police, and convicted Al Halabi. And he's now just been sentenced to 12 years in prison. It's an absolute disgrace. Uh, you know, Human Rights Watch would call it a miscarriage of justice, but I mean, in my view, that doesn't really go far enough because it's it's a real systemic issue with the nature of Israel and how it oppresses Palestinians. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate that uh, explanation, Asa. And to your point, I mean, I think it just shows that really any form of Palestinian resistance simply cannot be tolerated um, by uh, uh, Zionism. And uh, I think it just sort of pierces this, you know, trope that we often hear uh, that basically any form of resistance from uh, Palestinians is framed as uh, terrorism. But even if you have this uh, uh, sort of you know, nonviolent sort of uh, uh, institution like uh, uh, Mr. El Halabi was uh, helping to uh, run here. Well, even that uh, isn't something that can be accepted either. So the issue isn't this uh, fear mongering around, quote unquote, terrorism. But uh, in truth, it's about trying to shut off any avenue uh, through which Palestinian people and their allies and friends around the world can seek to to help in their situation. And uh, I just think it's really you know, important to sort of highlight this, uh, Asa, as we see uh, uh, just uh, attacks seemingly at every level on the uh, Palestinian resistance movement and the solidarity movement that uh, supports it. You know what I mean? And so sort of having a sort of real example of how this plays out, as you say, I think is really just one way uh, that we see this, you know, constant daily, uh, frankly, nonstop a kind of exploitation of Palestinian people that's uh, uh, become a part of everyday life for them and that we should be sort of organizing to overturn. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this wasn't, I mean, this is this case. I mean, there's, there are so many cases like this. In, in some ways, there are a lot of cases like it. Like, like I said at the beginning, the case of Mohammed al-Halabi is really just symptomatic of such a wider problem with complete lack of accountability uh, with the Israeli court system. You know, Israel's held up to be supposedly the only democracy in the Middle East. It's not a democracy for Palestinians, who are the majority of the people now between the river, the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it's been recent, you know, Israeli demographers recently, the Israeli press recently uh, admitted that now Palestinians are once again a majority between the river and the sea. 
the majority of people between the river and the sea, Palestinians, for them, Israel is not a democracy, it's an apartheid dictatorship. And this is a, just yet another example of that. And just the, the international dimensions of it, to me, are what make it extraordinary. And I think that it just shows, like as you said, it just shows the uh, contempt Israel has for any kind of accountability or any kind of human rights for Palestinians. You know, this was not a revolutionary or radical group in any way. You know, this is just a charity. They're just trying to aid some of the most vulnerable um, children in the Gaza Strip. It's not um, any kind of activist group. It doesn't even involve anything to do with BDS. And yet what Israel was trying to do really it was trying to... This, this was really a stepping stone for Israel, I think, because it allows them to say, well, it's part of their wider attack on human rights and AIDS, aid groups in the occupied Palestinian territories. And we see it's related to recent moves against Palestinian human rights workers in the West Bank, where they've outlawed now six human rights groups um, and they've attempted to, you know, get uh, European funders to withdraw their aid to these groups, Al-Haq, um, the Palestinian Center for Human Rights, and uh, these other groups that they raided recently and shut down their offices, sealed their doors. Um, they've arrested and harassed some of their leaders and so forth. And so this is, you know, this is kind of the thin end of the wedge where you can see they're starting with this, this group World Vision. You can see them acting against other international charities that act in the, in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank because they're trying to stop any kind of Palestinian life. The, the, you know, the pressure that was put on Al-Halabi was extraordinary, you know. Um, they, as I said, at the beginning, they, they kept him without a, a, a lawyer for 50 days. They subjected over the this so-called trial, which he was, you know, this alleged conviction in, in June... Um, this went on for six years. There was more than 160 hearings. They were putting immense pressure on him to sign a false confession and to say, yeah, you know, I did it, or to cut some sort of plea bargain, um, which would have given him lesser lesser number of years of conviction. But, you know, Al-Halabi resisted that. And, you know, this is a really admirable thing that he did, I think, which is the fact that he didn't want to confess to something that he hadn't done, A, just the principle of that. But also, I think it's obvious, and he must have known, that signing such a false confession would then have been used by the Israelis to say, ah, well, we have to stop all these other charities, Oxfam, you know, the, uh, the Red Cross, um, UN, even the UN and these kind of uh, international aid organizations coming to aid people, some of the most vulnerable people in the occupied territories. Uh, because, look, we've got this confession from a senior um, you know, charity workers saying that actually these funds are being used to siphon off to Hamas. So these kinds of um, fabrications... Uh, are just really flagrant violations by Israel that the Western governments are, you know, they just allow, they get the green light to this, really. You know, the most European governments will do will, will be empty expressions of concern and regret, but they won't actually do anything to prevent them and effectively encourage them by giving Israel constant military, political and financial backing. Yeah, and I was hoping you could say a little more, Asa, uh, about the Shin Bet, this uh, secret police force uh, within Israel mm. and the role that they play in this uh, kind of legal abuse. Yeah, so the Shin Bet is uh, effectively 
Israel's uh, FBI or for British listeners, uh, MI5, you could say, is this, this sort of domestic internal security service. But really, its main role is in oppressing Palestinians. It acts to, well, I'll give you one example from when I used to live in the West Bank um, and the days when I was an activist in the West Bank. Uh, working with the International Solidarity Movement, you know, we used to go on Palestinian demonstrations, non-violent demonstrations, even like uh, things like olive picking and accompanying children to school and so forth. And, you know, one day I was walking uh, down the street in Ramallah with one of uh, the Palestinian local organizers who was, you know, involved in these kind of peaceful demonstrations and so forth. And his phone started to ring and I heard him speaking in Hebrew. You know, I didn't know that much Arabic in those days. Um, you know, I, I'm, I still only know very basic Arabic, but, you, you know, you can you can tell from the sounds the, the difference between Arabic and Hebrew. And I could hear him speak in Hebrew, you know, like a lot of Palestinians in the West Bank of that generation, there was a time when they were still able to go and uh, go to Israeli areas to, to work. Um, and so they picked up some rudimentary Hebrew. So I said, well, who, who's that calling you speaking in Hebrew? And he used to said, oh, you know, it's the Shabak, which is, you know, Hebrew for, for Shimbet. Um, the, the General Security Service is its uh, full title. Um, and it's like, yeah, they're just harassing me and they're, they're saying all this kind of stuff like they're going to, you know, I, I don't think I can repeat what they said. Like it was just, it was just basically it was terrible threats against him and his family. And I was kind of shocked because, I mean, I'd read about such things happening, but, you know, when you're actually hearing about it happening to your friend, um, it, 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 it kind of hits you more, I suppose. And, um, it was, um, you know, and also the way he kind of took it in his stride of like, well, this is a normal thing. It happens all the time. And he kind of, I mean, I, again, I couldn't understand the Hebrew, but he was kind of giving it back. Um, um, but, you know, the point was he was an organizer. He was a popular organizer and well known in his local village and so forth for leading these demonstrations against uh, Israeli settlements. Um, and so they were harassing him and they were trying to, you know, intimidate him into backing down, you know, and that's really just a kind of low level example of the kind of things the Shin Bet do. You know, they, they regularly employ torture against Palestinian prisoners, for example. They they carry out um, mass arrests. Um, they do collective punishment, you know, and um, they, they employ the use of collaborators as well. And this seems to be something that was used in the case of Mohammed al-Halabi, where, you know, I've read accounts of um, torture by Shimbet of agents and and the techniques they use in Isra inside Israeli prisons. And one of them uh, that they use is where they, they have um, a, a Palestinian collaborator, which will they will... Uh, then insert into a cell with a prisoner they're trying to extract information from. And um, the idea is that then, then, you know, this collaborator will then sort of pretend to be, oh, you know, I'm part of the resistance and, you know, trying to win their trust and so forth and extract information from them. But more often than not, these collaborators essentially just make things up because they, their um, Shinbet handlers, they're telling them essentially what they want to hear. And so for essentially mercenary meat reasons, and a lot of these collaborators are just criminal elements anyway, so they're, they're inherently untrustworthy. And so they make things up and they sort of say, well, yeah, he said this and he said that and he confessed to doing this and that. Well, this seems to have been what happened in the case of uh, Al-Halabi, where the, a collaborator has said, oh, yeah, he confessed to me that he did this siphoning off. And the judges... Um, 
sentencing seems to have been um, almost entirely reliant on the testimony of the false testimony of one of these collaborators, which you know is is inherently questionable in itself. And, and we don't even. I mean, this is another extraordinary aspect of it. We don't even the, the ruling that was made in June by the judge in this kangaroo court wasn't even released. You know, it was a two hundred fifty full-page document and but it was classified it was designated to be a classified document it was complete it was kept completely secret from the public nobody can scrutinize it and its claims there you know there was some briefing to the israeli press about some of its contents so we can um ascertain this these details about the collaborators but you know i mean mohammed al-halabi's lawyer has said that you know the only reason this has been kept a secret is because to hide the embarrassment of the state of the israeli state so you know these are the kinds of things that israel shimbet does Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Asa, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a new documentary centered on an important episode in nuclear history. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dave Lindorf, an investigative journalist, editor of the online publication, This Can't Be Happening.net, and the 2019 winner of an Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Media. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And Dave, uh, here recently, I know you had the opportunity to work on a new documentary called A Compassionate Spy, which details the story of uh, Ted Hall, uh, a young physicist who uh, was working on the Manhattan Project when, you know, uh, he made a decision that I think has uh, had some uh, serious implications both for that moment and uh, for today. So I was hoping you could break down uh, just what A Compassionate spy is about and tell us just who is ted hall yeah it's an amazing story actually uh he was a brilliant young uh second generation russian jewish kid and uh just astonishingly brilliant with a older brother 11 years older who was an engineer eventually uh, aeronautical engineer uh but you know as a young man his brother uh, still a teenager in high school in New York City, uh, to, went to the parents who were both weren't college educated and said, I'm going to take over Ted's education. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they went along with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he was uh, really pushed by this uh, brilliant brother and uh, ended up going to college at 14 at City University down in Queens, that campus, and then got bored there, told his brother, uh, and his brother said, well, why don't you uh, apply to uh, to Harvard? And by then, he was um, 16, 
And so he applied and he got in. They uh, So he was started, uh, by the time he got there, he was 17 uh, as a junior. Uh, he, he was so advanced in his physics and math that they said he could come in as a junior. And that semester uh, in the fall at 17, uh, he there was a recruiter from uh, that Oppenheimer had tasked with getting some more physicists because they had, you know, the Manhattan Project, I didn't realize this, they had sucked up all the uh, professorial level uh, physicists in the universities around the country so that universities were having a hard time <laughs> finding physics teachers for their undergraduate students and were turning to, you know, uh, graduate students and stuff. So they really needed more. They were rushing to create the bomb. And uh, and so, you know, this, this recruiter came to Harvard and he interviewed four students that were recommended by the faculty and one was Ted the youngest of them all Roy Glauber was also uh 17 at the time and they both got selected along with two grad students uh to be sent to the Manhattan projects so Ted got to uh Los Alamos at the age of 18 on January 28th 1944 um, and uh, they put him on the plutonium bomb project, uh, which uh, specifically on the implosion device uh, or system for the plutonium bomb. It was very complicated, kind of baroque to make it work. And so he got really knowledgeable about that system. And as the year progressed, you know, 1944 was an interesting year because it's it's the year that the war really turned against Germany. Russia was clobbering the Red Army, the Soviet Union Red Army was clobbering the Germans by then and moving towards uh, the German border through Eastern Europe. And also that was the year that the U.S. finally really entered the ground war in Europe, uh, which was only it was only in on D-Day in June that uh, that. The U.S. put, you know, significant troops on the ground in Europe. And uh, so at that point, Germany was really beset. It was being bombed to pieces because the, uh, you know, they'd lost most of their air force. And it was a lot of the bombing was turning into milk runs and they were just creaming the whole industrial uh, infrastructure of Germany. So Ted got the the concern that uh, by by summer that uh, it, the war the bomb was really not going to be used on Germany because they'd be defeated, and worried about what the world would be like if the U.S. had a monopoly on the bomb after the war. So he decided he had to even the playing field by giving the the, the Soviets the information he had about the plutonium bomb so they could, you know, build their own bomb and stand against the U.S. That's the, that's the root of the story. And he, and he, the, the, he did manage to do it. He, you know, it's, like, it's so crazy that a 19 year old kid, which he was by October when he, when he made an effort to find a Soviet intelligence officer uh, that could find one, you know, think about it. How do you find a spy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty. It's definitely a pretty a wild story. And I'm also curious. I mean, what happened to Hall once it was found out that he uh, released these secrets? 
Well, that's also very interesting. I mean, he I, I learned this because I finally got the uh, FBI file on his brother. I had to appeal it because they they claimed they didn't have one. But when I appealed, it turned out they had like a 120 page file on him. The, the brother plays a big role in this because um, uh, Ted was identified as a spy very early but in the you know you know the Venona transcripts there were the code coded messages during the war that the Russians the Soviets excuse me were using from the US to communicate with their uh, you know uh, bosses in Moscow and back and forth were was were being uh, Copy. They were using uh, commercial cables, and they were being um, captured by uh, the Signal Intelligence Service of the U.S., the precursor to the NSA. So they were getting all these cables. They had thousands and thousands of pages of cables, but the the Soviet code, this was pre-computer, was so complex and so uh, well done that they could not crack it. It had multi layers and 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 sheets of, of code that got thrown out each time they were used, and it, and it went through several several layers of of interpretation before you could crack it, and they just weren't able to do it. So these they they had an operation called uh, Venona that was trying to crack it and going on for years, and it was only in uh, 1949 that they finally. Uh, had a break and uh, started to be able to translate a little of them. I don't think it's ever been totally translated. It was so so cleverly done. But um, they did translate a code uh, finally on one cable just around 1950. And that cable happened to be one, the first cable that was sent by uh, a um, Soviet uh, spy to Moscow saying that this kid had walked in uh, and uh, appeared to be uh, working at the Los Alamos and was offering to spy and that he had a roommate who w- they were thought would work as a uh, emergency on an emergency basis as a courier. That was Ted's roommate. Uh, Saville Sachs and th- it named them it made a mistake because the cable actually named them, they spelled his name wrong, they called him Thea- Theodore Cole K-H-O-L-L but it mentioned that his father was a furrier and they lived in uh, in Queens, New York and so the FBI was given that right away and they were able to piece together that it, it was Hall and that the father was Holtzberg. Ted, Ted and his brother had changed their names because of prejudice against hiring Jews. And um, so he got identified, and, and they identified Saville Sachs, too, spelling his name S-A-C-H-S instead of S-A-X. But again, they were able to identify both of them because of that slip-up. Usually the Soviet cables would only mention the code name. But this was before Ted and Sachs had been given code names. So, so they, so the FBI knew that they were that you know the two were spies, and uh, so he would have been in big trouble. But the brother, uh, by then in 1950, was 
in uh, Dayton at the uh, Wright uh, Patterson Air Base. He was a major in the Air Force and an aeronautical engineer and was the deputy director of a top secret missile engine lab that was developing rocket engines for uh, potentially, you know, uh, IRBMs and ICBM missiles. That's an astonishing thing. And so, you know, Hoover found this and thought, wow, this is a much bigger story than the Rosenbergs. And so he, uh, you know, put a, uh, you know, a, a full press investigation on Ted, on his brother Ed, and on Sachs. And, um, and ultimately, he, inter- he picked up Sachs and Ted and interrogated them uh, in Chicago, uh, Ted for three hours, Sachs for two hours, in separate rooms, not knowing the other one had been picked up. And they denied everything. And um, so, you know, he, uh, he then wanted to investigate um, – uh, actually, earlier than that, he wanted to investigate on Ed Hall, and that's that's where uh, my FBI file got interesting because when I got it from them, and this was after the movie came out, so it, instead it was in a Nation article last January. I discovered that Hoover had on January sixth, nineteen fifty one, sent a letter to the head of the. Office of Special Investigations at the Air Force requesting permission to uh, interrogate Major Hall. And he said, I'm writing you to inform you that your Major Hall is the brother of a known uh, atomic spy at the Manhattan Project. And I'd lo- we want to investigate him urgently. And uh, then, you know, there, there was no, I don't have the response from the OSI director, but I got another letter from Hoover in the Ed file um, saying, uh, thank you for your uh, response in which you said that you will be handling the investigation, your office will be handling the investigation into Ed Hall. Um I would, I and and he said we're our investigations advanced significantly, and it would be uh, urgently desired to have uh, permission to interview Ed. And then, you know, th- three months later, after the Rosenbergs had been convicted, you get this sort of pissy letter from Hoover saying, "You know, I haven't heard back from you about our request <laughs> to urgently investigate all." And uh, it was only in June that he got permission to, but then there was a limitation put on it. He wasn't allowed to ask about Ted and only to, in, to interview uh, Ed Hall about himself. And, and that was to be done with a uh, OSI agent um, monitoring the questioning to make sure that they, the uh, feds didn't go out of line and ask about Ted. So it was very interesting. And then after, after that, uh, the next thing you see is that Ed was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. <laughs> so, so clearly I put two and two together and the nation article I wrote said that, um, that the air force shut Hoover down because it was only months after that, that they're in the, uh, Ted Hall file and the and the Savile Sachs file, uh, it says they're being taken off the special uh, um, special investigations list 
of people who are supposed to be monitored 24-7. And they're just on a regular list. that They're not being monitored all the time. And so clearly the Air Force shut Hoover down on the Ted Hall investigation. And and the, the logic of that is that it, in the in you know 1951 that was the rise of McCarthy and you know the heyday of HUAC and uh, the you know if if Ted had been arrested publicly uh, by Hoover it, it would have taken the newspapers only you know a day to figure out that his brother was at that point running the U.S. ICBM development program and that he would have lost his job even though he wasn't a spy and the air force needed him too badly. He invented the Minuteman, <laughs> right? And the whole concept of a solid fuel ICBM. So he was a hugely important guy too, but not a spy and, and not a, uh, you know, an advocate of sharing any secrets with the Soviets. So, um, so it's basically Ted was saved by his brother's position. Well, yeah. And I'm also just wondering, Dave, I mean, how do you see the story of uh, Ted Hall and this whole situation as, you know, relevant for today when uh, the nuclear threat is not only still present, but uh, uh, seemingly is more dangerous than ever? Well, what I would say is this. Uh, Ted Ted was uh, concerned about one country having the bomb. And I think he absolutely nailed it as a 19-year-old kid that if the U.S. had had the bomb and if um, Russia or Soviet Union uh, had not been able to get a bomb for eight eight to ten years, which is what all the science community and the national security people and the Pentagon strategists thought was the case, uh, the U.S. was planning to bomb the crap out of the Soviet Union to prevent it from ever getting the bomb. They they were uh, after World War II ended, the U.S put a huge investment in developing a way to make these handmade atomic bombs like Nagasaki and Hiroshima uh, mass produced. And they were cranking them out by, by 1949, they had 250 bombs in their inventory with no other country expected to have the bomb for another five years. And um, that's when the Russians detonated, you know, 1949, they detonated the uh, bomb in Semipolitinsk uh, that was a carbon copy of the Nagasaki bomb. Uh, and that at that point, uh, the plan to there was there were plans to attack the Soviet Union with 400 bombs, which the Pentagon had told Truman would be necessary to destroy Russia as a industrial society, and that was targeted for 1950 or 51, uh, according to the plans that have been declassified, and that never happened because Russia exploded a bomb and then Truman uh, called off the plan. So they, or at least deferred it, you know, they're, they're, and, and what we got instead of a parity and uh, a, a agreement among the nations that had the bomb, Russia and the United States or Soviet Union and the United States was we, that didn't happen. Instead, of it turned into an arms race that has, you know, you look at it, it's been 77 years since the last time a bomb was dropped in war. Nagasaki. And and that's because of, uh, you know, MAD. We've had some close calls 
because heroic people didn't do what their orders called them to do, like the captain of that sub uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Russian captain that refused to authorize launching a nuclear torpedo at an American ship, um, and some some American heroes too along the way, uh, always lower ranking people that did the right thing uh, or the wrong thing <laughs> militarily. Uh, so. It, however you look at it, MAD has saved us from a nuclear conflict, and I think that it's still working. You know, I mean, there there were some threats from uh, the Russian side that, you know, it was always couched in terms like, you know, uh, so, something terrible will be visited on you that you've the likes of which you've never seen if you do this or that. And and that was a nuclear threat from, from uh, Russia, but it was a threat. And it didn't happen. And, you know, there were a lot of uh, Russia and the United States both have these uh, tiny nuclear bombs, like five kilotons. Um, I would have thought, you know, if Russia was going to use a nuke, a tactical nuke, uh, that the time they would have done it would have been, you know, either the time that the whole that whole Chechen tank force was stalled and they were just getting knocked off uh, or uh, that they would have used it to clear out that Azov battalion in the uh, in the steel mill at uh, you know the Azov steel in Mariupol, and they didn't. So uh, I I think that you know arg- it's fairly clear that uh, you know even as things have gone badly or or you know much worse than they anticipated uh, for Russian forces in Ukraine, they have not turned to nukes because of mad. Uh, they know that uh, and the US has had the same situation like with Marines trapped in Quezon, uh when they almost used the bomb but didn't. Each time there's always saner heads that, you know, say, well, if you do that, then the other side's going to use bombs and it's going to turn into a nuclear conflagration in no time. So I I think it is relevant. I think that uh, the Ukraine uh, conflict is staying within Ukraine's borders um, because of the fear of nuclear weapons getting used by one side or the other. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dave, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, September 8th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a shout at 202-521-1320. That's 2 
888-025211320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out the show on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. Digital you can also follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And as always, we are streaming live from Rumble. And you can see our channel at rumble.com slash C as in cat slash BAM necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And at the top of the hour today, Queen Elizabeth II, who ruled over the United Kingdom for 70 years, has died at the age of 96. Yep, she's gone. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Dave Racklin, the co-executive director of the Truth Telling Project and director of the Grassroots Reparations Campaign. Dr. Racklin, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, it's good to be here. Absolutely. And it's good to have you here, Dr. Raglan. And, you know, we wanted to have you on today, doctor, because just uh, having a look, I think even a cursory look at the status of black people in the United States at this point as part and parcel, I think, of the conditions of poor working and oppressed people in general. If we look at, for instance, uh, President Joe Biden's recent uh, gift of thirty seven billion dollars to uh, uh, the police also wanted to increase their numbers on the streets. This is uh, one uh, campaign promise that he's actually uh, uh, followed through on, uh, of course, with the ongoing issues of uh, racist police terror. There was a a 20 year old man in Ohio that was shot in his bed uh, by police. And I'm speaking of a 20 year old Donovan Lewis, who was uh, killed while he was uh, unarmed in his bed. Like I say, in the process of being served a, a warrant on a couple of different issues. And then, of course, there's the climate, the economy, all of these issues that emerge out of the contradictions of the capitalist system itself. And we we maintain here on the show, Dr. Raglan, that the capitalist system at this juncture is in a certain state of decline. And I think the consequences of that decline um, have actually shown, I think, or give an idea at least at just how much is owed to those people who were forced to build and maintain this system um, upon which so much of this suffering actually springs. You know what I mean? And it just shows in different ways uh, what is owed and uh, uh, really the importance and really the crucial importance, I would say, of a reparatory kind of justice. And so, I mean, just to ask a broad question here, Dr. Radlin, considering um, some of the things that I've laid out, and I'm sure so much more that we could get into, and you should feel free to do so, um, I'm just wondering how you see the questions of a grassroots reparations movement, given uh, the state of things at this juncture. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I see I see a grassroots reparations movement as necessary and happening. And, you know, what? however black people in this country, you know, believe or fall in line about reparations, I think that there's a, um, you know, a broad understanding that reparations is needed for slavery uh, and uh, for this world that was created out of slavery, you know, particularly because these were 
it wasn't it wasn't like slavery and colonization and the discrimination that came after like it didn't just happen it wasn't like oh these are systems that are here already we're stuck with them you know we don't really want to be bad people this we just can't help it like it was intentional choices right all along the way and then the rewriting of history the creation of science pseudoscience um that that we're really trying to uncover and hold up for america so that we could be accountable for once i I think that you know reparations being owed like as as it's a symptom of the choices this country made, particularly you mentioned in you mentioned Biden, like choosing to give billions upon billions to police while cities around the country languish, uh, particularly uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, right where their entire water infrastructure is is in disrepair. Right. As a result of white flight and the failure to invest in communities um, equally as a matter of protection, equal protection of those citizens. And so, like that happening, like the lead in their water and the lead and water in Flint and the inaccess of water for people in Detroit, like in, and the flooding that happened in Jackson and in St. Louis, like we're seeing our communities like be impacted because of choices that our societies made to not support black and indigenous and, and non-white folks equally in this society, even though black folks disproportionately um, are targeted by loan companies with higher interest rates. The, the neighborhood that I grew up in, in St. Louis, there is a, 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 a covenant on the mortgage, right? That that requires more interest and that also doesn't uh, accumulate wealth for my family, right? Debt collectors are more likely to go after black communities at every vector in American life. Um, black people are pushed out and uh, tr- mistreated and um, given the worst um um, terms with this American contract, just a broken contract, not just for us black folk, but uh, definitely we experienced the brunt of it and the lack of attention and care given um, to programs that support our communities uh, and programs that can help us deal and address climate change and create climate mitigation programs. There is just a lack of fairness and human decency that's uh, extended toward our communities. Um, And that's why reparations is urgently important. And it's not just reparations. um, Reparations requires abolition of systems that uh, reinforce death and not life. Yeah, I was hoping you could say more about that, more about this uh, uh, piece between uh, with this connecting tissue, if you will, between uh, rebel, uh, reparations and um, this this concept of uh, uh, abolition, because I mean, personally, doctor, I'm um, of the opinion that uh, the abolishing of whatever institution that we're saying needs to go, be it the police, the court system or what have you. I don't believe that that can 
you know, happen within the context of the current sort of capitalist system. I feel like that would have to be a part of an actual revolutionary process here in this country, uh, which is also similar to how I feel about uh, reparations. That's something that could only really truly come down in a situation uh, where there's a completely different system and society from uh, the capitalist system that we're living under now. And so what is the sort of um, interplay, if you will, between between the need for reparations and uh, uh, the related need to uh, abolish these uh, abodes of uh, oppression and exploitation that have been in place here uh, for centuries at this point. Yeah, I honestly think that reparations is about uh, accountability. It is like you, you can't um, colonize entire, um, you know, continents and people and enslave them. And then there, there be no debt arising from that moral and material harm, right? Like people want to keep what they inherit, but not pay the debt, right? That debt side of the ledger. And and so I think the connections are that reparations is a full concept. Like reparations is not just the compensation, but it's healing and education and truth telling. And it's also, and, and this is a definition uh, from the United Nations, Development Agency, uh, which looks at uh, reparations as being necessary as a result of gross crimes against humanity. And uh, a panel, as you saw in 2019, ruled that uh, reparations was due to black people who were enslaved in the U.S. um, because slavery was a gross crime against humanity and all the institutions that emerge. But the most important part of reparations is guarantees of non-repeat, which means we can't continue to do the same thing. And um, how do we live up to this principle of non-repeat? And that is through abolition of, of institutions that, that benefited from slavery, that still benefit and hold the interest of slavery, that like policing, which emerged out of that. Um, and I do agree there has to be a, a movement, right, that, that addresses this. And there is, because abolition is not just the tearing down of, of systems, but that it's also the, the building up of systems. And there are communities around the country, particularly Black, Indigenous, Latinx, who are farming and envisioning new possibilities within within the system, within um, the current structures, but they're not living by that, right? They are trying to live into something regenerative, right? Something that's connected, something where people are connected to spirit and land um, and connected to what it looks like to decolonize land in terms of, like, we don't look at slavery as transforming the, the landscape of this country, meaning natural ecosystems, right? Destroying them so that they can be put in place for, for farm production. And we see farm production and mismanagement within colonized approaches to forest management and agriculture are some of the leading uh, inputs to climate disaster and carbon emissions, 
Um, and so people are challenging that on their own. And they're honestly like uh, informing USDA now and Department of Ag. Um, and, and even in California, the state had turned over a large yeah, uh, hundreds of or thousands of acres to indigenous communities so that they can uh, forest and do indigenous land practices that they've done for thousands of years, control burns, so on and so forth, that people didn't figure out until it's too late for us. And so I think that abolition and reparations are connected in terms of this continuum from slavery to this moment, right, that has required abolition for uh, Black folk to get free. And also, um, it's required it's required um, for us to also build and envision something when the state won't do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, you know, you raised uh, earlier and I think quite appropriately, doctor, uh, this issue of um, the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. And I just think it shows just how profound and, and inhumane and cruel uh, these interconnecting um, institutions of capitalism and white supremacy are to where people in uh, the richest nation on Earth are denied something as basic as uh, clean water. Or a reliable uh, uh, energy system uh, in that way. And I was even just looking at a recent piece where uh, uh, the the governor, Tate Reeves, was talking about how he's considering um, privatizing uh, uh, the water system in Jackson, uh, Mississippi. And I mean, I don't know, I immediately thought of uh, the ERCOT system in Texas, which is privately owned and ran, but uh, completely failed the people of Texas in the midst of a cold snap not that long ago. And people suffered. And some even died as a, a, a result of this. But, you know, it, it, it's just that um, that classic sort of thing to where it, it shows how the wealth that's generated by the rank and file person in this country is not really enjoyed by the people that generate that wealth to the sense that you can't even guarantee on clean water coming out of a faucet if you turn it on. On in cities like Jackson, Mississippi and Flint, Michigan. Um, I was actually reading, I think, just yesterday about how in West Baltimore, not that far from where we are here in D.C., there have been boil water notices going up and things like that. So even the most basic and fundamental resources that every single human being needs, whether we're talking about water, food, clothes, shelter, health care, and all these other things, even that is uh, denied by this uh, uh, system that has more than enough uh, resources to uh, solve these issues. It could solve them several times over. But because of the way that this system is designed, it's not designed to, you know, benefit human interests, but uh, basically to hoard profit for a handful of people and uh, uh, with the rest of humanity suffering sort of just being, you know, uh, the cost of doing business. You know what I mean? So it's literally a life and death thing that black people and poor working oppressed people have to deal with on a constant basis in this country. And so when we see that something as fundamental of water is denied uh, people under this system, Dr. Raglan, I think it uh, uh, shows a lot about uh, what else has not only been kept from us, but what also has to be fought for if we're going to reclaim that which rightfully belongs to us. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I completely agree with you. Yeah, it, it, it's the sort of thing that in 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 discussing it, when you you consider it, it it shows about how I think white supremacy in this country. It's not a superficial thing. You know what I mean? It's not something it's not always as in your face as a racial slur or some open act of uh, discrimination and things like that. I mean, we're talking about something that goes down to the very fabric, the very DNA of uh, uh, what the United States is. You know what I mean? And within that, it feels like it shows also not only how deep um, the abuses, but also how extensive uh, uh, the repairing of those issues have to be if they're uh, going to be adequately addressed. You know what I mean? Were I mean, you know, white. As I said earlier, that white supremacy covers every vector of American life. Like, even this is why the 1619 Project was so controversial because what they essentially did, um, the the authors they established that slavery was the reason for the American Revolution, right? It was so that people could keep their slaves. So it, it, it's not just that, that that is the case. It is that it also at every turn, the U.S. tried to hide it, right? It was a political choice to, to do things, you know, to extract labor and land from people and, and extract the planet and impose religion and language and all these other things. And then it was a, 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 uh, an act to, to try to hide it, right? So, for instance, after there's a book called Founding Brothers by Joseph Ellis, and he has a chapter called Silence. And in, in that discussion of, of silence, what he does is he... he finds that the founding fathers wanted to essentially strike from the record that there have been conversation about, you know, ending slavery. And then a choice made that slavery was so important because they really didn't want to do the work, right? They didn't, they didn't want to do the work that they were bringing in people to do. They didn't think that white people would want to do it. Um, especially because, you know, during the pre-colonial and colonial, or I'm going to say during the colonial and pre-nationhood times of this country, the 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 white laborers there, there were so many uprisings. And so what we constantly see is this country using class from its very beginning, uh, or race as a proxy for class, right, to essentially keep people divided to keep them from aligning on issues of working people uh, and issues of bad governance and, you know, this kind of excessive wealth uh, accumulation for a few as opposed to paying the workers who are actually building the wealth. Um, And, you know, they created a caste system so they can, you know, enclose wealth and keep poor whites and uh, black folk away from decent lives uh, while at the same time having poor white people okay with their lots in life because they're not black, because they don't have to do the same uh, back-breaking uh, labor. Um, and 
you know, I think the the important piece is that the every vector of American life, um, and and that's deeply sad. It distorts people's identity and and who they think they are. If they think they actually deserve these things and, and work hard, um, and I'm not saying that people don't work hard, but um, if they were black or a, a black woman or, or brown or, or whatever, would they still be afforded those opportunities? And the answer is no. Definitely. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Dave Raglan. And Dr. Raglan, earlier on the show, we were talking about this issue that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with about uh, a leaked list of uh, uh, of membership of the Oath Keepers. Of course, this uh, a right wing, really a far right sort of uh, armed militia type of group that, you know, uh, included more than 80 people who are either running for or serving in uh, a public office, along with uh, people in the military and law enforcement agencies. Agencies. And one thing that I've been thinking about as it pertains to this issue is, you know, that's that's something that I feel like we heard a lot of during the uh, civil rights era about how, you know, the different policing and other agencies were also uh, shot through with, uh, you know, members and maybe even leaders of different white supremacist groups. And so this is not sort of a a relic of a bygone era that that we're talking about here. I actually think that that is a microcosm of how uh, this government has always operated and how there's all it's always been sort of shot through with different um, racist elements at different levels in the military, in local government and uh, uh, things like this. But, you know, there never really seems to be a serious effort to try to identify in person these elements. And I remember there was particular attention that was given to this um, uh, during the time of uh, uh, Donald Trump to where a lot of this attention away from the presence of white supremacists in the military specifically, and I think even the pulling of resources away from that um, happened as well. And so this to me, doctor, just feels like what you were discussing a moment ago in terms of this um, refusal to really acknowledge uh, uh, the depth of uh, the issue of uh, systemic racism and institutional racism. And it's you know, far deeper than sort of just to refuse to acknowledge it, but in the act of doing so really facilitates that kind of uh, uh, racism that if it goes on unchecked, uh, continues to uh, uh, victimize people. You know what I mean? And so I'm just sort of generally curious your top line thoughts about this, the leak of this Oath Keepers list, uh, Dr. Raglan, and what do you think it sort of shows about uh, just how deep sort of the tentacles of white supremacy go uh, here in the U.S.? I mean, and, you know, this is the thing, like, this is just one side of white supremacy. It's like the open, angry side, right? 
as opposed to like the side that is, you know, making money from privatized water companies, right? Or every every business imaginable, right? You know, there's two different prices. You know how when you travel somewhere, there's a local price and then there's a, a regular price. And, and that is what black people encounter, right, as white supremacy everywhere. There's a black cost, right, to, to you know, you buy a car, higher interest rate, even if you got good credit uh, or mortgage. And so the list, you know, speaks to this very, this you know, the way white supremacy has been evolving and one thing that we have to think about um, in the white supremacy movement is that, you know, it was only in 1979 when during the Greensboro massacre where the KKK and neo-Nazis joined teams right for the first time. Um, and then and then, you know. Then we have the, that the Greensboro massacre, right? As a result, and we saw that the police, even back then, which came out years later, were involved, right? And had given this group the parade routes for for these um, these. Uh, the, it was actually a um, socialist, um, a socialist activist uh, rally that had happened, and I think that. There's two things to think about, right? And the first thing is that this country tolerates intolerance, right? This country tolerates those who spit hate, right? And, you know, like, not just talk about it, but go out and carry it and lynch people, right? You know, at one point, like a large part of the Indiana state government had to came under investigation because the whole government had been taken over by the KKK. And this is in the last century. This is during my parents' lifetime. Right. And, and so this is like the ongoing legacy. And then when we saw that when Obama got elected, that there was a resurgence, right. in in recruitment and white supremacy, you know, um, even it's not just in Southern states, right? New, New Hampshire has one of the largest growing, you know, um, amount of white supremacist groups in the Northeast. Um, and, you know, more so than other states. And it's a small state. Um, and, and so it is, it is a, un, uh, um, it is the failure of a national reckoning at really important points in our history that we didn't root out this intolerance because it costs too much for capitalism to say no to some people. And it also threatened to upend um, this kind of relationships of disparity, right, that were created, right, as a result of you know, bringing in and, and creating a caste system in this country and a, a permanent underclass, right? And so we're, we're really living out the fact that um, this country has never had a real reckoning, uh, tolerates intolerance, um, and funds uh, violence. Um, and, you know, so I think we're we're there. And the problem is, so staggering um, that, you know, I really 
you know, believe this country is, is headed, you know, to not just climate catastrophe and the racial, outward racial hate, but like, like real, like people picking up arms and trying to fight for the Confederacy again. That's, it's a war that's never finished. Yeah, and uh, I just wanted to make note of something that you mentioned, this 1979 uh, attack. This was um, at a rally organized by the Communist Workers Party. It was a death to the Klan rally that was taking place in Greensboro that I believe you were um, talking about. And uh, five members of the party were were shot and killed as a result of this by uh, the combined forces of the Ku Klux Klan, the American Nazi Party. And this was in a time where the, the, the armed a sort of racist militia movement um, uh, was really strengthening in the U.S. around that time. You know, people like uh, Timothy McVeigh would be uh, influenced and inspired by these sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, to be sure, what you're saying is um, uh, uh, correct about sort of, you know, uh, how this can evidence the kind of uh, hidden hand of a white supremacy that we we often see in the, 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 the U.S. And I think a lot of people sort of have a sense that these sorts of things go on and, and, and operate. But to see it laid out uh, in this way, I think just uh, uh, brings it to a kind of um, undeniable kind of level. And even when uh, considering uh, all of this, uh, uh, Dr. Raglan, I mean, you know, um, I mean, just even in thinking about uh, how the, the student loan crisis and all these sorts of things play out um, along racial lines as well. And so these uh, uh, half measures, quarter measures, uh, basically non measures that we get from the government, like we see from the Biden administration and things like this. I mean, it shows that, you know, uh, those in power that this ruling class of which the Democrats represent only one wing. um have no real interest in solving these issues in the way that um, they they always seem to overwhelmingly impact black people and people of color and poor working and oppressed people in uh, uh, general. And that the most that they're willing to do is to sort of gesture or pretend that they're doing something or to engage in this kind of political theater to make it seem that um, they're uh, addressing this serious problem. When in reality, all they're doing is just uh, sort of another dog and pony show that's a very strategically timed around uh, uh, sort of the lead up to the midterms in this country that feels a lot more like pandering than an actual level of concern for how these problems uh, affect people. You know what I mean? And uh, even in talking about the student loan debt issue, I mean, it's also hard not to think about, you know, these other predatory lending issues that we've seen over the years from the banks towards black people that really blew up um, under the uh, uh, Obama administration and the recession that happened there that he could have helped prevent, but instead chose to bail out the the banks instead. And I think even that is quite um, a teachable moment in a way there, Dr. Raglan, because I mean, we see these issues that are facing black folks, even under the first black president. And so it, it raises again, I think that issue of, of how race and class are sort of intertwined and about how at times people's identity, be they black or women or LGBTQ or what have you, or some combination thereof, 
um, is often used as a way to sort of whitewash and obscure how uh, the system itself and operating. And so we're supposed to feel good about, quote unquote, one of us making it that we forget about how these things actually impacted. But the truth is, they're not one of us. I mean, we may share a heritage or some other aspect of, of our identity that we may have in common. But at the end of the day, that group of people fundamentally have different material class interests of the rest of us. And so uh, as such, within this com conversation about white supremacy and how it interplays with capitalism, Dr. Raglan, well, that issue of class, I think, becomes uh, that much more important. You know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, Olafemi Tawo from Georgetown University has a book out called Elite Capture um, in it where, where he describes how um, identity politics have been taken over by uh, capitalism. And, and we see that with Obama, you know, and just the, the conversations we have about black excellence, which which also reflect the kind of respectability politics and like, you know, like all of that. And it it makes like movements like the Black Panthers, which have principled issues behind them and, and somebody like Jay-Z to like quote people from the Black Panther when, when you know, or even Beyonce, right, to, create, to, to, to quote feminists, you know, um, politics when, when they don't really hold those politics, you know, they, they just have interest, you know, in, in, in the people and maintaining a captive audience. Um, so, I mean, this is how we're used constantly. And um, even even the reparations conversation, you know, it's, I think it's two sides to the reparations conversation. It's people who want, you know, people coming to the conversation saying, look, I want a seat at the table. And for many people, that means feeding your family. But ultimately, reparations can't be buying into the same system. It has to be depend, obviously demanding repayment, but also turning over this table so it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised this whole uh, issue with Jay-Z. I mean, there's understandably been... Um, a lot of uh, conversation around it. And for those who may not know, uh, this is going back to some comments that uh, Jay-Z made, I believe, uh, uh, a few days ago. And uh, uh, he said in part, quote, all these lies that America told us our whole life and then we start getting it, they try to lock us out of it. They start inventing words like capitalists. We've been called and words and monkeys and expletive. I don't care what words y'all come up with. Y'all got to come with stronger words. And so I think the root of a lot of the criticism of Jay-Z's comments here, Dr. Raglan, has been him equating being called a, a capitalist with being called a racial slur, which is is pretty wild, but actually not that uncommon uh, amongst, I think, particularly this celebrity wing of black people like Jay-Z. It's just so interesting that at at different times, they will compare themselves or something they may be doing to, you know, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, like conflating this uh, black capitalist ideology, this idea of black capitalism as liberation with 
the thinking and activities of actual flesh and blood um, uh, uh, organizers and revolutionaries like Malcolm and Martin, who would have a great deal uh, of contradiction with what J.D. is saying, excuse me, what Jay-Z is saying. And we know that based on things that they said and did while they were alive. It's uh, it's just a pretty wild thing that to me is just sort of a part of how someone like Jay-Z justifies the things like th- that they do, because this is someone who has bragged about um, the billionaires that he made, you know, namely in Rihanna and Kanye West. This is the same cat that told us to gentrify our own hoods and try to hustle these Fugazi cryptocurrency uh, uh, courses at his own uh, old neighborhood, the Marcy Projects. I just feel like someone like Jay-Z is illustrative of uh, uh, a lot of things Dr. Raglan. But see, the thing is, Jay-Z is someone who has a kind of profile to where it uh, it has an appeal to young people. That He has a reach to elements of uh, uh, black America that um, a lot of us on the other side of the political spectrum simply don't. And so how do you see not only the issue with uh, what Jay-Z is putting forth, but how to combat that when, when so often uh, those of us who sort of stand against this um, empty ideology of black capitalism, of liberation, um, uh, and just the reality that we don't have sort of the profile of uh, Jay-Z precisely because, in large part, to those politics. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, I I think it's like several things happening. It's like, you know, Jay-Z as a person, you know, is is he's representative of of what empire does. Right, Empire uses all kinds of merchants, right, to, right, to do whatever it is, you know, to maintain the empire, right, um, and and the idea of celebrity itself like reinforces the notion of exceptionalism, right, where this person because they made a lot of money and people pay attention to them that they are therefore qualified to speak about black liberation. And, you know, often people like Jay-Z and Kanye, they may be inspired by Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and may even name a song after after them. And But the content won't reflect right what they meant. Um, and this is another kind of way that, you know, we capture revolutionary politics um, in capitalism, right? And how, like, empire is like the blob. It will cover anything and put a, a shiny capitalist spin on it. And, you know, Jay-Z, you know, is essentially a agent of empire um, in the sense that he is convincing black people to gentrify your own neighborhood. What does that mean? It's like to 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 make people powerless and exploit them and force them out of to make your own neighbors and families powerless and push them out of their neighborhoods like that means that police don't even have to be a part of it anymore we can do it to ourselves like you know in the same way like my critique of jay-z from the beginning has been because you know in my own family i have a lifelong crack addict and he's talked about selling crack why don't we should do it why would I let somebody else profit from selling crack in my community? Right, so this is all really personal to me. Like, and, and it is it's disrespectful of 
Like capitalism is in generally a system of exploitation that does not have any values beyond making more money and and making more money for the people who already have money, right? And and so really he's promoting some kind of pyramid scheme that's that will fall apart. Like we're like we don't have enough resources to continue extracting and consuming and exploiting the planet, right? And and we and we don't even have enough people. People are leaving the marketplace because they don't want to be exploited. They don't want to be. Why would you choose to be a frontline worker when they clap for you and spit on you the rest of the year? Yeah, definitely. We're going to move to our, another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Dr. Dave Raglan is here as we continue. And, you know, I wanted to pick up on our uh, conversation that we were having a moment ago, doctor, about, um, well, specifically the, the issue with Jay-Z. But uh, you were making a broader point of um, the role of celebrity in maintaining empire and justifying um, uh, uh, how this capitalist system operates. And so we're supposed to admire, you know, the Jay-Zs of the world and uh, the Oprah Winfrey's and all these other folks that we could name. We're supposed to admire them as individuals and the wealth that they personally have and enjoy. But of course, in doing that, it, uh, it invisibilizes the experience of exploitation that has to happen for someone to get that much money. And I've said this before on the show, and I'll say it again. There's no such thing as a self-made billionaire or millionaire. You can only get that much money through the ruthless exploitation of others. And it's true with your favorite rich people as with the ones that you don't like. You know what I mean? And it's just a sort of interesting thing that people do. I don't know if it's a cognitive dissonance or what, but it's sort of like people may generally hold sort of a basic uh, anti-capitalist politic, but, you know, if they happen to like this or that billionaire because of what they make, be it Jay-Z or Beyonce or whatever, not to just, you know, pick on those two, there's a bunch of people we could name, um, you know, the, all of that sort of goes out the window, you know what I mean? And so when we, when we live in a culture of celebrity worship, which is precisely what we have in the United States, doctor, it, it has a particularly powerful hold on people's consciousness and can invisibilize any number of issues, not just the exploitation. But I mean, you look at people uh, like R. Kelly, uh, who's an abuser of women and girls for years, for years and years. And it was known that this is what he was doing, but the mere fact of his fame, fortune, uh, uh, prominence, and his ability to protect himself made it to where, you know, he only recently has faced some kind of accountability 
for his actions. I mean, I think we could say the same for Bill Cosby and a lot of, of other people. You know what I mean? And so celebrity just has this really sick way of protecting people from accountability simply based on their stature, their wealth, and and things like that. And so the protection of someone, or really of a class, based on their wealth, doctor, then to me, in its own way, is a kind of defense of uh, the capitalist system itself. But that's just sort of my estimation of it. I'm definitely curious how you see it. Right. I, um, I think the same thing. I, I think... Uh I I also like see like celebrity in in Western culture as an outgrowth of um, empire, like but but particularly to um, to the feudal power structure of of like you know a king or even before that an emperor, but but just to this is the the person and and anybody who's connected them are exceptional people. Um, and they have exceptional wealth and they don't have to, you know, do what everyone else is doing. I think this is a general problem of like class structures and hierarch- hierarchical structures in general. And I, and I see hierarchy on the left and the right and they, they need to be challenged. Um, and, you know, also I generally have a, a, a problem with hereditary monarchies, right, for, for the same reason. Um, as well, or any kind of monarchy uh, for that, for that, because uh, they they generally like avoid. Um, they create so to zoom back in to the the conversation around celebrity now is with what they do is they create unrealistic expectations for people. They are part of the the notion of an American dream that you can come go from Iowa and become a Hollywood star and be the best and, you know, like whatever, like all of that stuff. But it also is kind of like the, the hunger games. Most of us starve most of the year, but we'll give a chance for somebody to make it out and to be a star, an athlete, some kind of hero celebrity. Right. Like we see it all the time. Like, you know, I was watching this show uh, uh, on a uh, streaming service about um, people wanting to make it in a rap business. And, you know, they were like, you know, I don't have nothing that would, you know, but this is my chance. This is my chance. And it should be that any job that you put 40 hours or 35 hours a week at, you can make a decent living and survive. And it is because we have millionaires and billionaires that we can't pay people a decent wage or that, you know, also this is a problem in white supremacy as well. And in, in white supremacists in the military, when the only exit from poverty is the military or police, Right. Then you you guarantee that a large number of your society is going to be military, ex-military. And those are like huge recruiting grounds. But then on the other end, that's the only way you get out of poverty in many communities. That is how my family came out of poverty. It's the military. And those jobs are, are like 
you know, though the jobs where you get paid more, you know, you have to cause harm to someone. But but I really think the issue, you know, is uh, patriarchy, like the 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 notion of the patriarch is that all of our worth um, is comes from ultimately extends from the patriarch. Right. Um, and you have standing once the patriarch recognizes you. And in our society, you have standing once money recognizes you. Or once the media recognizes you, right? You can't make a living off of do, uh, of putting your honest hard work in, even at a McDonald's, right? You should be able to make a decent living. Yeah, and, you know, the fact that that's controversial under this system, I think, uh, uh, says uh, a lot to where, you know, it's actually one of those sort of glaring contradictions that we always see. Because if we take, you know, the fast food worker, the retail worker, uh, the warehouse worker, the the package uh, driver, you know, delivery truck drivers and things like that, sanitation workers. I mean, we're talking about institutions and corporations that have more than enough money to pay people in actual living wage, you know, to pay them enough money to where uh, uh, it would actually allow them to make a living based on the cost of living where they are. And we know that across the United States, the cost of living is uh, increasing more and more and more and more. And yet we continue to see these uh, uh, fights from workers for uh, uh, adequate wages and uh, better um, conditions and better treatment and, and all these sorts of things. I think most prominently we've seen it with Starbucks and Amazon and all of these huge corporations that make super profits every year, but uh, uh, really only toss their workers crumbs and treat them poorly as a part of the, the, the process. And so when we see the strides like uh, groups like the Amazon Labor Union makes, in, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, fighting for certain concessions for these companies. I think it actually says a lot because uh, one aspect of capitalism, of course, doctor, it, it can make these institutions and these corporations and the CEOs that run them, they can seem invincible. Like they're just sitting in, you know, a skyscraper somewhere in a nice, you know, fancy air conditioned uh, uh, office far away, not only from the daily toils of uh, their workers, but far away from the pitchforks and rage of people seeking to uh, uh, storm the gates for some justice. But I think that both these fights and the gains that they make show that uh, the ruling class isn't invincible. It's not some uh, faceless blob of people. These are human beings with names and faces and things like that. And uh, they shouldn't be able to just exploit people without there being any kind of uh, uh, account uh, ability. And so, uh, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence either that a lot of these labor struggles are being driven by young people. They're being driven by black people and other uh, people of color. They're being driven by women. It's just uh, across the board, it seems like some of the most um, exploited and marginalized elements 
of the U.S. populations are uh, taking part in this labor fight. And so for something as basic as a living wage, doctor, I think also has some clear uh, racial implications, particularly when we uh, uh, talk about reparations that um, we could uh, uh, highlight as well. But, you know, just on every level, I think it just shows how important it is to continue to sort of grow this movement in general and to make these connections across the different issues, you know, if any of that makes sense. It makes total sense. You know, I honestly, I, I really, I'm excited for the labor organizing that's happening in this moment. And, you know, I, I can only hope and be a part of supporting, you know, um, so that, that, that we can, we have the possibility of, you know, uh, worker democracy. I think we have some momentum. Like, um, and you're right that, um, the organizing, particularly against Amazon and even happening with Starbucks is showing that this system has, has its, its, uh, blind spots and that people can't organize and that they don't hold all the power. We still hold the power. And we also empower these companies every day because we spend money with them. And one way we know tried and true to make people change is to withdraw our consent and don't spend money with these folks. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the question of power that you raised is, is always a crucial one and one that I don't think we can get away from, nor should we seek to. And I often say on the show, you know, and the impression that I get from uh, some people, even sometimes within the movement, is kind of this um, fear of power and just what that means. And uh, this is something else that I think is actually sort of a, a weakness of the state in the way, because, you know, uh, this, this capitalist white supremacist state is uh, uh, incredibly powerful. And I think that uh, certainly even they believe that they're in invincible and aren't subject to any kind of uh, a real accountability. But I mean, not only does history show that as being false, as we're discussing uh, different contemporary uh, uh, issues that are happening right now as we speak, show that as well. And so I think that that's a big aspect of when we talk about political education and the kind of messages and narratives that we're getting across to our class as we're organizing is to show people that we do, in fact, have power and that our power to organize and the numbers that we have also in a, a comparison to that of the ruling class is now when I would argue has always been uh, the sharpest weapon that we've had to really strike a blow against this system and the ruling class that runs it. And so I think this is why, you know, uh, uh, these are themes that uh, we often touch on here on the show, because, I mean, history just has shown in so many different ways about how that is really the key is to have this mass movement of poor working and oppressed people that are making the connections through all these issues and that ultimately will address itself to the capitalist system itself self out of which all of these problems emerge. You know what I mean? And so I think as ever, there's been so many attempts to try to address problems and even provide solutions that very well may be good uh, within this moment. But I think sort of focusing on the centrality of capitalism uh, uh, in it all sort of shows a real way forward. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Dave Ragland, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episodes as always we'll see you next time peace by any means necessary